Hello, I'm Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them, or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the Pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. This is John Leeson, and I play Kate Nine on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels, and that is compulsory. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club the podcast in which we undertake the potentially deadly task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have a not-deadly-at-all three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. And finally, we also have our semi-casual fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch-Safried. Hello, Alison. Good evening. If you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of them, you've had to build your own Forbidden City just to house them all. (laughs) And yet no one is trying to break in and take them. (laughs) No, not at all. So you need not have done all these explosive puzzles that children could figure out. Uh, Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, and James Sumnall. Thank you all. Thanks, y'all. That's getting to be quite the list. Yes, it is. It's getting to be a very long list. It could be longer. Just saying. Yeah. That would be nice. I like you know? it. Yeah, I like it, too. <laughs> I it, feel loved. It, yeah, it helps pay the bills a bit. Well, the... It helps pay the SoundCloud bill, and that's the only one that's important right now. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We now continue our discussion of Pertwee's last season with the novelization of Death to the Daleks. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who, Death to the Daleks, adapted by Terrence Dix from the Terry Nation script that aired from 22374 to 31674, published by Target Books in July 1978. As of this recording in June of 2020, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 125 pages. Before I get started on the background of this particular story and this particular book, a weird little thing about 
how this title works out. It is, to my knowledge, the only one of the target titles that uses a hyphen before they all go to using hyphens fairly soon into Peter Davison's run as the Doctor. Up until that run starts in the early 80s, all of the titles have and in them. Doctor Who and, Doctor Who and. And this is the only time that Doctor Who and Death to the Daleks would have sounded stupid. Are we talking about the TV episodes or the target novelizations? The target novelizations, because the titles have always been Doctor Who and The. The only time a TV story was ever called Doctor Who and The was Doctor Who and the Silurians. And for some reason, that held even up to the Tom Baker story Warrior's Gate. So the novelization of that one, when we get there, is going to be called Doctor Who and Warrior's Gate, which is just bizarre. Yeah. Hmm. If any title could have needed a hyphen, that one. So this one stood alone for the longest time until it became the norm for these books to be titled that way. All right, so Barry Letts asked Terry Nation to do another Dalek script because they were still able to pull in viewers, the Daleks, and Nation obliged by submitting a script so similar to Planet of the Daleks that Terrence Dix would later quip to Terry Nation that he enjoyed the story and that he had enjoyed the story the last time Terry Nation had submitted it. Oh, wow. Yeah, he could be very uh, acerbic when he wanted to be. One of those similarities was that Exelon was meant to be a jungle planet, which was quickly altered. Also, the human expedition was meant to be as hunted as the Thals were in the previous story, but here they're shown to be better established from the start. Nation also named the planet Exelon because the cure for the space plague the humans are searching for was originally called the Elixir. Get it? Exelon, Elixir. Uh, Because that's Terry Nation for you. He could have called it Maladus or something like that. That would have been just as subtle. (laughs) Luckily, Robert Holmes, who was trailing Terrence Dix in preparation to become script editor for the following season, suggested changing the name of the cure. He also may have suggested the title Death to the Daleks because Robert Holmes couldn't stand the Daleks. <laughs> Otherwise, there's a lot here we've seen before. There's an internal strife-ridden expedition with a single female, single white female, obviously. Yep. Hostile natives of whom one becomes an ally, as ha- happened last time. Location filming that features the destruction of Daleks. And a planet whose environment is hostile in some way, this time through artificial means. It's essentially Terry Nation's greatest hits. We've seen this before. We've seen these things in Planet of the Daleks, but we also saw them in the Daleks' master plan. We saw them in The Chase. We saw them in the first Dalek story. As soon as Terry Nation gets an idea, he runs with it. And then he (laughs) runs with it again. And then he runs with it again, and then he does a marathon with it with the Dalek's Master Plan. Luckily, his next Dalek story will be quite different in many ways, but we'll, we'll get there. The only other notable thing about the television story is that it's the latest story of the series to have a missing color episode. When it was released in 1987, as the first VHS-only BBC release, as opposed to also having a Betamax version released at the same time, it used an NTSC color version of Episode 1 from Canada, 
Later, when it was re-released as a complete and unedited version, it used a PAL version recovered from Australia, but despite being called complete and unedited, it used the Australian version of Episode 2, which was edited. <laughs> to uh. remove all the nudity? or No, no. There were, For length? There are a couple of cuts in it. Uh, in fact, I didn't realize because occasionally I will download these episodes from the internet to watch them because I don't want to be bothered, you know, hunting down the DVD copy that I have somewhere. And for some reason, the copy that I had was indeed the VHS copy, and it had some bits missing. And I recognized the bits that were missing, including, for instance, when Sarah says, who are you trying to kid? The doctor says, myself mainly. That bit is missing. Hmm. So just odd edits. So even the BBC didn't care enough about the story to pay proper attention to it. One last thing, speaking of not paying proper attention, the incidental music for the story is notoriously bad. Or rather, the Dalek theme is bad. Carrie Blyton, who had done that lovely kazoo-sounding music for the Silurians, was hired to do the music for the story instead of using Dudley Simpson. As he did with the Silurians, Blyton made some interesting choices, shall we say, including using a saxophone quartet for the story and using a theme for the Daleks that made them less menacing and more, well, bumbling. Um, <laughs> in fact, I'm going to play this for you and play it for our audience at home as well, and you'll be able to hear just why it is that this is... Uh, this doesn't scream menace. This is the music that we got every time the Daleks appeared on screen. <laughs> is this composed by John Philip Sousa? It sounds like it. This, yeah, this isn't exactly music to make you want to wet your pants, is it? It sounds like Scooby-Doo. Or vaudeville, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Scooby-Doo, yeah. yes. It could very, yeah, it could be. And I don't know why, to this day, Carrie Blyton decided to do it that way. The rest of the soundtrack is kind of okay. It's very experimental. It is a saxophone quartet, which by itself is not necessarily a bad choice, but doing that theme for the Daleks, terrible. So are they more bumbling on the episodes than they are in the book? Well, that's debatable. Um, they're pretty bumbling. Oh, well, actually, yeah. Well, they're not comedically bumbling here. We could argue that they're somewhat inept, but that doesn't seem to be a characterization in the book. No, they actually are a bit more bumbling in the televised episode. If anything, Dix has made them slightly more Dalek-y in the book, which is a good thing. Which makes it all the more surprising to discover that the novelization of this story is one of the few books that was translated into German and it was released in 1990. I do have a copy of it, though. For the life of me, I don't understand why it exists. You know, not everything that communism censored out was something society needs. <laughs> no, no, certainly not. And so I don't understand why anyone would, even in Germany, would want to know anything oh, about this. now we have... <laughs> All right. I guess I'm thinking specifically of former East Germany. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Now we have access to everything in print in the West. What shall we import first? <laughs> well, here's import a new... That's the Daleks. Oh. <laughs> yeah, this exactly. Is what they have. Maybe this is what decided them not to import much more. I don't know. Mm. Let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Allison, you 
volunteered Dalton last time, so I'm volunteering you this time. <laughs> Nominating, I believe, is the, the term. Yes. A mysterious power law strands the TARDIS on Exelon, a sinister, fog-shrouded alien planet. Forced to brave the dangers of the planet, the Doctor meets the survivors of a beleaguered expedition from Earth searching for a precious mineral that can save the galaxy from a terrible space plague. Sarah finds a mysterious super city and becomes a captive of the savage Exelons. And worst of all, the Doctor's greatest enemies, the dreaded Daleks, arrive in a secret mission of their own. What terrifying power makes captives of all who come to the planet? What is the secret of the mysterious deserted city with its great flashing beacon? <laughs> I was going to say bacon. <laughs> its great flashing bacon. <laughs> and what sinister plan has brought the Daleks to <laughs> has brought the Daleks to Exelon? The Doctor and Sarah must risk their lives time and again in a desperate attempt to foil the Daleks and save millions of humans from the horrific plague. So my excuse for reading that so badly is that I kept wanting to insert involuntarily Comed Exelon. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> the local... Uh, uh, the power-driving plant. <laughs> well, yes. I was going to, I, monopoly was the word I was looking for. Yes, the local electric monopoly. It's definitely monopolizing. I wouldn't put it past Comed Exelon to have a, a mining planet somewhere where they were actually just draining all of that planet's power. <laughs> and then charging us double for the privilege of receiving it. Yeah. I found where all the hyphens went, Tony. They're in the blurb on the back of this book. <laughs> yes. Fog Shrouded, Space Plague, and Super City. And City is capitalized, which I actually, I tried to be less pedantic than my nature urges me to be, but that's just... It's bad. I cannot, I cannot stand. Sarah finds the mysterious Super City with a capital C and Super City. Yeah. Well, since, since it is an AI form, it, is it a proper noun? Is it is it referring to it as the city? Yeah, that's I the guess. point of it. But uh, yeah, it gets it's a still little... stupid. <laughs> well, yes. well, well, where do we start? There's so many things about the story that are just boneheaded and stupid, and that. But of course, that's me saying that with the how do we put this with the. <laughs> laughable advantage of having seen the televised version. But yeah, let me get your first impressions. Dalton, what was your first impression upon getting this one? It's been a minute since we've seen the Daleks, so I, I was expecting uh, some kind of danger. But <laughs> 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 some Something, but immediately them not having any power. I'm still confused about how they could get around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, this one had me with just a lot of questions. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't have too too much uh, to say on the good side of this. It's just <laughs> it, it, it's kind of meh. Okay, Allison, what was your first impression? I actually didn't think it was that bad overall. It okay. I'm about to draw a terribly unkind comparison. It's basically the movie Solo, where you have seen every <laughs> single scene before. <laughs> If you were watching that movie for the first time, like for the first American adventure movie you'd ever seen, it would be a much different experience than if you'd seen 82 adventure movies before, I guess. Uh, so it wasn't that it was that objectionable by itself. It was just there was literally no original content or even original scene or original take whatsoever of any kind in it. So mm -hmm. um, that's a, a pretty harsh comparison to draw. If this were the first Terrence Dix I'd read, first Terry Nation I'd read, first Dalek story, etc. I, I wouldn't have felt that sort of annoyance at how it only repeated 
and only recycle previously seen story elements. Mm-hmm. In and of itself, it's not bad. It's 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 it, it's. Uh, I, I actually thought it was going to be lighter, um, and it a little on the darker side than I expected relative to the thinness of it. Yeah. I didn't actually have as many groaning moments as I think you and Dalton did of, oh, how many more pages are left in this thing? <laughs> Fortunately, not many. It was the and shortest one so that we've short. read. Yeah. yeah. So short. That's what she said. That's one of the advantages of it, that it is very short. Unfortunately, it makes up for the shortness by making it feel like it's longer. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's mainly, as you've said, Allison, there are so many elements that Nation is retreading from his own stories. Well, remember, I think I live somewhat in infamy for liking just fine the first one that we read, the season two premiere, with where um, Cass was miniaturized in a garden. Oh, yeah. But I hadn't read one before. I was like, oh, this is fun. It bops along. Mm-hmm. Bops along, not excellent. And, and this was similar. It's not bad. It's just, I wasn't even thinking of other Doctor Who novels either so much as how many different stories are there from the 60s onwards of a fatal amusement park or a fatal chess game or some other system of having to work through puzzles. There are so many repeated tropes in here assembled in different ways, but there's not a new or interesting take on any of them. And I kept expecting something a little more offbeat, Mm -hmm. a little more innovative, and it never came. Well, to answer that one thing about Planet of Giants is that that was your first one, and it also was your first Dix book. And that was later Terrence Dix... And even though that book was kind of awful, at least he was adding to it. Here, we've got 1978 Terran Sticks. We've got mid to late range Terran Sticks, even critics of the time. I looked up the entry for this book in the Target book by David J. Howe. And even then, people were kind of like, yeah, this is a paint-by-the-numbers type of novelization. It's very much script-to-page in a way that Dick's earlier books were not, and his later books to some degree were not. By this point, he's writing essentially six, seven, eight books a year. Hey there, it's Future Tony talking to you for a moment. And I'm going to give you some perspective on that claim of how many books Dix was writing at the time. Eight books isn't an exaggeration. There were 11 Doctor Who target novelizations published in 1977. Eight of those were written by Terrence Dix. In 1978, when this book was published, there were seven books for the whole year, and he wrote five of them. And this was the third one that was published for that year. That is a lot of writing to do. At this point, Terrence Dix is likely trying to hit deadlines, and some of the things that we talk about in this podcast may be going out the window a bit. Anyway, back to the discussion. This one shows, even though there are a few changes that he does make that help quite a bit. Dalton, you ask, for instance, how do the Daleks move? Yeah. Yeah. And that was, I thought, going to be addressed in the novelization, and then there was sort of a faint away from it the last moment. Mm-hmm. Because I think, I think, is it Sarah who actually asked, you know, how are they able to move around if everything is depowered? Oh, well, there, there are creatures inside of them, the doctor responds. Well, how are the creatures able to operate their housing? And, and <laughs> yeah. that's just... Hey, they're, they're moving along with little tiny legs on casters. <laughs> that's the real world explanation, but... They're on Flintstones mobiles. I thought that was going to be an interesting part of the story. 
either they're essentially no. confined in their casings, but they are so clever and devious that they will actually figure out some ingenious way to still control the situation or try to. And that would have been interesting. Or we'll find out that they are more fueling the casing with more bioorganic interface or something that's different. I, I, but Steampunk you know. Daleks, yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, maybe it's more like a bicycle. Uh, <laughs> gears and pulleys. Maybe they're generating the energy from their own bodies, but now that's being drained away. Their but, own hatred is powering them along. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and now they become kind-hearted because... No. <laughs> their hatred's being drained from them as it leaves their body as power. I don't know. No. He could have no. taken a wild stab at something interesting. Well, and even, I was just going to say, even their reason for wanting the perineum, it, or, yeah, per, perineum. I just always read it as a perineum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Initially, they make it sound like they have some other purpose for it. But in the end, it just... No, we just want it so we can use it as a as a way to make you guys kneel down to us and, and submit. Which is just bizarre if you think about it. The Daleks, of all people, should not have to go and say, oh, we're getting all of this, and now we're going to ransom it. It's like, yeah. what? It's not clever enough. It, it's okay that it's despicable and weird, but it's not smart enough. It's not good that it's scary. despicable and weird. <laughs> I mean, my God, these are supposed to be the Doctor's greatest enemies. They are supposed to be the creatures that everybody in the universe fears. I was going to say the most technologically advanced species known. Yeah, and they're acting like fucking gangsters. And I shouldn't talk about gangsters because we'll be doing that next time. But still, this is ridiculous. And even more ridiculous, I've been trying to get to this. The scripted explanation for the reason why the Daleks can still move around is that they travel using telekinetic energy. I'll repeat that. Yes, they I was move... waiting for and... <laughs> that's, the, that's the joke. They move around using telekinetic energy. That's it. That's the only scripted explanation. Apparently, Terrence Dix thought that that was just as every bit as ridiculous as it sounded, and he figured... It's better if I don't even give something. <laughs> well, it becomes a whole different story if suddenly they're telekinetic. Yeah, exactly. And this has never come up before. And Maybe they could do their own mineral extraction then. Exactly. We know for sure from previous stories that the Daleks either have to conduct energy through metal or they have some sort of solar collector on the back of their casings and then in later stories they have some sort of internal <laughs> Doctor power. runs by with a piece of gaffer's tape and covers it up and disables yeah, them. exactly. <laughs> Whereas here, they're just kind of moving along by force of will and I guess even Dix thought this is ridiculous and just did not put it in the novelization at all. <sighs> but it does leave it with that weird question which is, how in the fuck are they moving? They shouldn't be able to. The whole premise is ridiculous. I would have actually preferred a lame explanation to, we know this needs explaining, but we're not going to do it, which is what we got. <laughs> yeah. But then we'd be talking about the lame explanation the whole time. But it would at least be something. I mean, how many stories have we had where the explanation is god-awful, but it's like, okay, well, they at least made the point to wrap this up and, and yeah. you know, give us something. I agree. Because I think about it this way, we did have the ridiculousness of David Whitaker's stories where everything is powered by mercury and you can time travel using mirrors. But 
the yeah. the fun thing there is that that is so ludicrous and wacky and out there that you somehow accept it. Yeah. Telekinesis? No, that's not quite crazy enough. And if you're never going to bring it back up again, what's the fucking point? It's ridiculous. It's on the verge <laughs> of being something interesting you have to explain so they didn't go with it. Yeah, I guess so. I, I guess we're just kind of left with the mystery of it all. It's like, okay, great, because there's no other mystery in this fucking story. So I actually have something positive to say. Okay, please do, because... And I don't think anyone's going to try to compete with me, too. No, you won't. <laughs> no, they shout really won't. out the thing they liked about the book. I thought that the initial description of how the city is on this almost glass flat clear plateau and how weird and unnatural it is and her making her way across the plateau actually had a good atmospheric menace to it mm. um and so sort of the fact that it's both electrified and yet clearly dead at the same time i thought that was a, a good imposing uh, mental image yeah. and i like the idea of a planets and or not like the idea of but like the explanation this entire civilization was wiped out by basically real estate uh, developers <laughs> and software engineers who were not menacing they just didn't think through the implications of what they were doing you're in big trouble logan barry bush hmm? logan barry bush we didn't think it through and uh, developers and software engineers had far more power over society <laughs> <laughs> than they, they ought to have. And, oops, what can you do? Yeah. We're all dead. Yeah. And yet somehow, <laughs> and yet somehow this thing has been around for millennia and their race has gone on for millennia at this level with some apparent offshoot who don't believe in the city as a god and who are trying to destroy it. And were they supposed to be biologically branched off as well it was challenging for me to tell yeah. if they were bi biologically basically the same but had started a separate social group or if they had somehow adapted to the caves but i'm like no no we're told they all live in caves both groups live in caves so why would yeah. one group be more adapted to the caves than the other yeah and they're it's not like they're getting nutrients at all to keep them alive because we're told later that they're eating i can't remember what they're eating but i remember hearing about some shriveled up cute. fruit oh yeah yeah no not the humans they're eating nasty stuff too in fact they're eating nastier stuff on the page than they are on screen i love how dix actually has the doctor thinking about every time he has nutrient cubes because apparently he's done it so often that he knows what <laughs> it's coming how <laughs> yeah, they can't make the things actually taste good this is what I'm going to remember after this book is I actually spent a full 10 minutes today musing about if I had the task of <laughs> uh, the, the creative side of nutrient cubes for a spacecraft, like if I could do 10 flavors, what would drive people the least crazy if you did like, you know, <laughs> seven savories and three sweets and maybe like a chocolate one and a fruit one and something like, you know, cinnamon for the sweet ones and then... You know, maybe a, a beef and a chicken and a celery. And I, th this is the only thing that captured my imagination, yeah. is what I'm saying. Well, there you go. And that tells you something about this book. Yeah, it's about as interesting as the food cubes that probably have flavors like mud and shit. 
and hair and all these other things. Well, <laughs> I'm never hiring you to work in the craft artificial food flavorings department when I no. have the job of hiring no. manager for artificial flavoring department. Thank goodness for that, because I do not have the skill set. In fact, I'm not even sure I have the skill set to endure this discussion of this book. Yeah, it's it doesn't make sense if you look at it. And here's and the problem, and we've had this happen before with these books. The problem is that Terrence Sticks can only work with what Terry Nation has given him. And as usual, Terry Nation has not given him a hell of a lot. But there is something to work with if he wanted to. He could actually tease out, and has in the past teased out, at least a little bit of token exploration of how a society destroys itself. Yeah. And then how the surviving remnant copes with that. There, there are kernels of interesting ideas in there, but none of the... They're not... They're brought up and then they're dropped. Yeah. And it's understandable why. It comes down to Terrence Sticks probably had to do the story editing on the story to begin with and had to tease what few ideas there were out of Terry Nation to begin with. When it comes time for him to novelize the thing, he's probably thinking, okay, well, Terry didn't really care about what he was doing with the story, so why should I? So he doesn't add a lot more. In fact, he takes away some bits, which is a good idea. But he's got six more of these to do this year, so why bother? I thought there could have been an idea there with rejection of technology and what that would actually mean if one took a hard line on it. Like yeah. If you pick up one rock and use it to hit another rock, is that use of technology? Is taking any object in your hand using tools and using technology, where do you draw the line? And that, that could have been part of the religion, what they do or do not reject. But even that was a, a lazy line. Uh, we use crude mining tools, not sophisticated <laughs> mining tools. Being that they're all hand tools. I don't know why, but yeah. this is reminding me of Orthodox Jews taking the Sabbath and not being able to use specific devices during that. Sure, sure. Like the, the elevators where... Mm -hmm. For Shabbat, the elevator stops at every floor, so you don't have to use the buttons, but you're still using the, the lift mechanism. You're still using the elevator. So that, I think, could have been an interesting kind of thing to explore, but no, we can't have nice things in this book. No. Yeah. Well, and even the idea that the Daleks exploit, okay, we can't use, uh, you know, modern technology, anything with electricity, but they use gunpowder. They basically create machine guns. There's tons of human inventions that don't use electricity that they could have invented they could be using <laughs> yes, yes and i expected the charges would not go off or would not destroy the tower because as yeah. either they would be we're not told what kind of energy source they have but either they would be drained before they detonated or in the instant they detonated all the energy would be absorbed and metabolized by the beacon but no all you had to do was climb the outside and plant a small bomb like your dateline <laughs> blowing up that truck in the 90s yeah. and you've defeated it and it seems like someone could have figured that out in the wow, previous millennia. Wow, that's a dated reference. Whoa. <laughs> oh, I hear what you did there. <laughs> but yeah, the thing that, that might explain why the doctor goes into the city to begin with because he's got to weaken it somehow so that those charges will actually work. But, well, but he could have just pole vaulted to the base of the beacon tower and gone from there. Like, well, that's not quite what the Daleks did, but it... Eh. Pole vaulted. Yes, pole vaulted. 
from outside the city into the city because <laughs> all you had to do was climb the beacon on the exterior so and you can Dalek plant bombs over. under the tower apparently why did anyone have to go through death chests to get theirs no idea <clears throat> i think it's just to try to get four episodes out of a story that essentially is a two-parter I mean, obviously, I'm asking a stupid question, so they have something to do. But even then, there could have been a moment of, oh, wow, we went through all of this elaborate risk and gamesmanship when all we had to do was throw a hook with a rope over the side. And no, there's no kind of moment of humor or no. realization of, you know, the extra work they'd done. No, of course not. With a dark sense of humor, this could have actually been a very funny story. Or with a little more social or psychological mm -hmm. insight, it could have been interestingly dark but instead no and the irony is that terry nation started as comedy writer you would not know it from the script you would know that terrence Dix has a quite dark sense of humor because there are a few incredibly nice little snarky remarks that he makes about Daleks along the way but these are not the things that Terry Nation himself would have said about his own creations. But yeah, at, there's a difference between adding something in to give the character something to do and adding something in and being so blatant about it that the audience can see that that's what's happening. And that going into the city with the Doctor and Bilal is essentially that. It's just padding out a story that's already way too padded out. And it's only a four-parter which is just astonishing. There is some self-aware winking here, I guess. I have a sentence. Unharmed and unhindered, Dr. Embalal passed the nightmare room, the electrified pavement, and the room full of skeletons, and arrived at last in the alcove through which they'd entered the city. Bilal collapsed, gasped me against the wall. I never believed we would escape, Doctor. So I, I, just, <laughs> I think the way that's listed off as the nightmare room, the electrified pavement, the room full of skeletons... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> exactly. It's a somewhat contemptuous litany of these supposedly formidable puzzles they had to pass through. Well, Taren Sticks is nothing if not contemptuous of Daleks. Oh, I thought he was being contemptuous <laughs> of Nation there. Well, probably a little column A, a little column B, to be honest, because remember, Terry Nation was also the genius, and I, I say this with all love, by the way, I don't want anybody thinking that I'm just bashing Terry Nation. I'm bashing the story is what I'm doing, because by this point, he's gotten incredibly lazy. This is very similar to what he did with Keys of Marinus, and Keys of Marinus essentially does the same thing. The only difference with Keys of Marinus is you do have five different stories in a six-parter. This is just one story. Now, when I was talking about Terrence Dix being snarky about Daleks, I was thinking about lines like the one in Chapter 11 when they're about to go across that pattern where it says, since Daleks take no interest in the finer points of interior decoration, they fail to see anything unusual in the red and white checkered pattern on the floor of the hall. And it's a lovely bit of snark, but you don't get a lot of that either, and you certainly don't get it in the original story, which is just... And in Chapter 13, the two Daleks had endured a battery of mind-bending whites and sounds with stolid indifference. Daleks have so little imagination that it is almost impossible to hypnotize them. <laughs> it's like, yeah, of course. But you make a good point, is that even on the Dick stories that we've complained about him lacking energy on, there usually is quite a bit more atmosphere, there are more jokes and humorous moments, more little vignettes of characterization, and he just 
he scatters the tiniest crumbs of each of those here. And I th- would argue that he skips the characterization entirely with the guest stars. Yeah. But I think that the Doctor and Sarah we have here isn't bad. We get to see them being smart and clever in a way that uh, we saw less of, I feel like, in the last story. I agree. I agree. It's not, they're not badly, they're thinly characterized. They're not mischaracterized or badly characterized. And we have Sarah screaming in here in ways that she immediately recovers from in a way that I thought worked. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually fine to have the companion scream at times when the companion's a point of view character at the moment. Mm -hmm. And the point is, look what a terrifying situation this is. You would be terrified. You would be terrified. You would be televised and terrified. (laughs) <laughs> terrified i'm gonna leave all of this in you know As this, well, right? <laughs> i know i know i know anything i say can and will be held against me in a court of public opinion sure so <laughs> i think it's fine when the companions scream when you that's the point of view character in the moment when the writer is indicating you too would be terrified <laughs> in the moment but yes. then you would recover and figure out what to do next as opposed to "Ooh, look at this stupid screaming girl she's helpless Yes. And you think you're going to get that at the beginning when she's being sacrificed. But we get that lovely bit from her point of view in chapter six, where he says, somewhat to her own astonishment, Sarah was still alive. It was a funny thing to say about your own sacrifice, thought Sarah, but she's beginning to get rather bored with it all. Yes, I did like that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The sermon is really long. And how long is this surface? (laughs) Exactly. Right. Yeah, she's also high as a kite by this point because yes, the incense has put her... Bored in a worship service was kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. She's just <laughs> kind of drugged out and like, uh, let's Ready get this over with. <laughs> because it's taken up half an episode already. But yes, this is much more the Dr. Sarah relationship as we get it later, as we know it today. This is probably the very first story where you get them bantering with each other depending on each other and the doctor actually saying sarah i need you to do this because i know you can do it she's incredibly capable in this story and (laughs) even that bit where they're uh, about to be sacrificed and she says well if they were trying to get us to go down this tunnel anyway should we be worried about what's in this tunnel and he says i I was afraid you'd think that sooner or later (laughs) (laughs) And it's lovely. That actually is lovely. So you're right. The bits that we get with the Doctor and Sarah are good. They stand out a lot more because there's very little else that is, I think. I thought the the nature of the sacrifice itself was clever, which is they basically force someone to trigger the security system. Yeah. But then it's not explored further than that. If by the security system you mean the city's giant floppy metallic penis, then yes. Yes, I was actually thinking of that scene that I love to complain about from... How can you not tell what I'm talking about from these clues? Um, Tom Cruise War of the Worlds. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, God, where yeah. he's followed around by the phallic eyeball in the basement for like, nine minutes or something. Mm-hmm. And the scene where we discover mm. that the aliens are not that scary because they're so inefficient at murdering Tom Cruise... <laughs> that it's going to take them forever to work their way even through the neighborhood uh, yeah. if this is the rate at which they work um, but once again it, it it could be a terrifying image it wasn't in this case but it, it, an interesting interaction with the 
what seems like an ancient monster and is actually just a perimeter security detection and elimination device. Yeah, and it's uh, actually more effective on the page, obviously, than it is on screen. Where it wasn't can, very effective on the page. Well, that, that shows you how ineffective it was on screen, where it's basically, as you would think, a big metal thing supported by wires, even on location where the wires are even more noticeable. Yeah. Yeah. On location, like they went to an actual mud tunnel? Yeah, they went to a quarry, as mm. they usually do. <laughs> they don't get out much, but when they do, it's to the quarry. It's always to the quarry. Always <laughs> to, to the, the quarry. quarry. They're never booked for weddings and bar mitzvahs. So a quarry is always available. Oh, yeah, of course. Even though it would be great for weddings if you wanted an alien environment, because all of your guests will have seen alien planets on Doctor Who that look exactly like quarries. So <laughs> Your guests will lose their appetites in fear, and the reception will be very affordable. Yeah, precisely. Especially if you're eating those dried-up fruits. I still am stuck on that. How are they getting fruit on this planet? What the fuck? Where... They, they. All right. I'm. I'm sorry. I have to. I just have to go off on this because I've been, I've been bottling this up for like a week now. The Exelons cannot use tools. They reject technology to the point where they can't even use hand axes. They can't use things for digging. But I thought the breakoff group that was eating fruit would use some tools. They probably would, but they're still on a planet that has, is described as having been turned into a virtual desert. It's, yeah. yeah, it's a So desert. how are they even surviving? How are they even propagating generation after generation? For that matter, why do the Exelons even still exist, for crying out loud? Are they forced to breed with each other? Because these conditions don't seem like the sort of thing that would be conducive to hot muskrat loving. They don't seem like the sort of things that would cause any species to say, hey, we'd better carry on, shouldn't we? What the hell? Well, there's nothing else to do. Now, unless they reproduce asexually, which, of course, they may actually do, because we're not told that there ever is a difference between males and females at all. We don't see any females. For that matter, the only females we see in the whole damn story are Sarah and, well, we get Jill Tarrant. And I have to say, Dix really does improve on Jill Tarrant, given what we get on screen which is surprising. Um, I'll get into that in a minute as soon as I'm done with my rant, because where are they getting this fruit? I thought we were going <laughs> to be told. We were told they have, I think, like, kind of coarse bread and dried fruit, and I thought that there would be some kind of brief perfunctionary exchange of Sarah trying to put a, uh, you know, trying to be a gracious guest and say, oh, this is lovely. Where are you getting it from? And yeah. she would be told, oh, we have, you know, some kind of seed store and an underground hydroponics setup or something like that. Yeah, and but... we don't have to have a detailed explanation yeah. of everything. We don't have to have every I dotted, every T crossed. But some explanation of anything would flesh it out a bit. Yeah, and I think the problem that we run into with this particular story, as we often do with these novelizations, is that once it's on the page, you have more time to think about it. If you're watching this, say, for 22 minutes each week... You don't really have the time as you're watching it to think about it. And between episodes, you might. But it doesn't allow you the same sort of pause and reflect time that reading it in book form does. And you have mm -hmm. to have those lacunae filled in. 
Terra Nation has never been particularly interested in filling those lacunae. Terrence Dix is only interested in filling them when he's got the time to, but this happens to fall in a year where he literally didn't have the time to. He just had to slap it on the page and get on with the next one. I am embarrassed to say I do not know the word you are using. Lacunae. Gaps. Absences. I think lacunae refers mostly to pauses in music, if I'm not Mm. mistaken. So anything that's a gap. And there are gaps in the story. There are huge gaps in the story. And one of them is if they can't use tools, even the offshoot group shouldn't be able to do anything like plow the land. If they're living underground, how on earth are they getting anything to grow, much less make bread and get fruit out of it? Well, I think it can be fine in a story like this to have plenty of things that aren't explained. It's, it's almost nothing is explained. Yeah, precisely. Especially when the Exelons are stated to have been the supreme beings of the galaxy to the point that they have actually visited Earth and influenced the building of the Aztec temples. Oh, man, I forgot about <laughs> yes. that. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I, I mean, we've been talking... Ancient um, Well, it is the yeah. season, right? I mean, this was written in 74. Mm-hmm. The book was written in 78. We're still in that splatter dump of a time when ancient aliens was a big thing. There are those who believe that life here began out there, far across the universe, with tribes of humans who may have been the forefathers of the Egyptians, or the Toltecs, or the Mayans. And Chariots of the Gods was something that everybody believed in, even certain scientists. Well, and I've read recently an analysis of that era as aliens being supposedly, to some people, a more feasible explanation than ancient non-European people figured out systems of engineering and design. Yeah, and that says it right there, doesn't it? That it's a deeply, deeply racist at its core attitude to hold about ancient civilizations. Oh, the Egyptians couldn't possibly have made the pyramids. They were brown. Oh, the Aztecs couldn't possibly have made a pyramid of their own. They were brown. What is, and yet for a while there, we were believing that the Mayan calendar had accurately predicted the end of the world, so it's like a pick-and-choose kind of thing, like the Bible. Yeah, an odd relationship with ancient knowledge, the idea that ancient knowledge, the relevant parts of it must be like supernatural or occult or something like that, but not progress in the sciences, not progress in understanding of the physical world, that all has to do with, you know, witchcraft instead of physics. Mm -hmm. So... Maybe the Mayans had yeah. some sort of insight into the future on a sort of supernatural level, in a sort of sci-fi way. Lord knows they couldn't have figured out masonry right. <laughs> beyond the point that maybe we have actually been able to figure out certain techniques so far. Yeah, because heaven knows they didn't create the wheel. It's like, well, the I think, if I remember correctly, the jury is still out on that one, that the Aztecs may indeed have had some version of the wheel, but I don't know. Next episode, we'll update you, everyone, on the latest analysis on who had the wheel first. If we feel like it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it uh, And that city. Nation and Dix did not invent the wheel here. No, not even with that city, because we've even gotten that before, this forbidden thing that you can't go to. Yes, yes. 
Certainly we've had ominous dead cities before. I find dead city to actually be a fairly evocative image, and I thought it was described in a way that was sufficiently chilling. There's something very, very wrong here. We just don't know what it is yet way. But then that that, that was the high point. I thought, oh, the story's starting to get interesting. But that, that was the moment of interesting, and then it passed us by. Yeah. Uh-huh. And all those puzzles, what gets me... <laughs> What really gets me is that, <laughs> all right, let's get this straight. Belal's been looking at those symbols for ages now, and as have some of his predecessors. Nobody gets it. The few that do get inside to that first chamber somehow don't realize that if you're tracing the maze on the wall, you're only going to get one shot at it. So they immediately just stick their fingers everywhere and start tracing, and so they die. And we don't get the sense that anybody actually got through there until you have to do this pitch and toss game, as a later companion will call a similar puzzle that Terrence Sticks steals from the story for his own story. How long do you plan to play pitch and toss? Patience, child! And I think Bilal speaks for the entire audience at one point when they cross that pattern on the floor and he says, I do not understand, Doctor. Was all that really necessary? <laughs> It really has that feel to it. It's like, oh, okay, this is, yeah. So, what, well, we've said that the Doctor and Sarah seem to be pretty good here, especially with Sarah coming up with the idea of filling the bags with sand rather than the perineum, which is great. That's exactly what we'd hoped that she would yes. do. How do we feel about the Earth Expedition? I specifically want to talk about Jill Tarrant. Yeah, they're all fine. Yeah. Um, I've already wiped most of the names away with the windshield wiper of my mind, but um, <laughs> I thought we might have a little bit more interesting character arc for the guy who blows himself up in the end. We always knew he was going to some sort of self-sacrifice. And it actually, it wasn't terrible. What was yeah. his name again? Galloway. Yes, Galloway. Yeah. It wasn't as interesting and developed as it could have Ben, it wasn't terrible either. Actually, I guess Galloway, in many ways, encapsulates the strengths and weaknesses of the story. It's not a bad story to do, to have someone who believes themselves to be not in any way evil or full of ill will, but just ruthlessly pragmatic in the name of self-preservation, but ultimately also completing the project. And then he finds that greater and greater sacrifices are demanded when he takes that route. When he decides that there are individuals who may be sacrificed, he's gone from handing over the Doctor and Sarah to saying, well, all these aliens could die, we don't like them anyway, to perhaps sacrificing his own crew, etc. And that that's not a bad story to tell, but we don't have anything new or interesting brought to that character arc either. Yeah. And it isn't even that much of an improvement on Galloway as he exists on screen. But there's a little bit of backstory in Chapter 6 that Terrence Dix gives him and gives him process of decision. But that's about it. There isn't a lot of characterization of the Earth crew. Is this what people are saying about The Last Dance? I haven't watched it, but isn't it at the end of the day? There's not a lot to Michael Jordan. Essentially, yeah, I think that's what that movie is essentially saying, and I think that's why people are reacting to it so vehemently, the way they are, that some people are saying, oh, well, this documentary should never have been made at all. It's like, well, 
possibly not if it's going to present its main subject as so deeply human as he is. Well, I don't mean to dehumanize an actual living person, but I forget who it is who said that the most boring person you've ever met or heard of is so much more intricate and interesting in their psyche and experiences than the most uh, you know, gripping fictional character that you've ever read about or seen. Well, yeah, that's what they don't like. Yeah. Um, so I think it's okay to do a story about a person who is doesn't have much of an inner life, but then that... That becomes the story. Mm -hmm. And that could have become the story here, and it really didn't. Yeah, it could have, but you're right. It absolutely did not. I do have to give Dix something of in the way of props for this, that Jill Tarrant doesn't come off as quite so capable on screen. She is a little bit, uh, I don't want to say frailer, but she's also, in fact, he changes her whatever it is that she does as her job. Because on screen, she's described as doing something very different than what she's described as here. In the book she's described as, I thought, one of the scientists. Yeah, she's an engineer. And on screen, she isn't. She's given something else. There it is. I found it. She's a full engineer here in the book. On screen, she's a geologist. Now, that doesn't sound like a big difference, but it really is because she's getting to do a lot more on the page, such as having to painstakingly go through these rocks of perineum and find the vein of it because it's deep down in it. And it's one of the few times we have a female character that Dix does not call a girl. He doesn't make any comments about her attractiveness. He really lays off the physical descriptions on this one, except for the Exelons, where I was actually slightly skeeved out at mm -hmm. how he sort of moralized their appearance as you know, not just repugnant to humans, but like sort of evil in appearance in a way that I think is not a great youth fiction trope to be able to look at a species and tell that they're bad. Yeah, Based on the true. shapes of their noses or something. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But for the humans, you're right, he uh, he gives us almost no physical description, and that's unusual for Dix, because he usually gives us a brief description of everyone. I think there was a description of the height and age differential uh, at the beginning. Yeah, there was. He also says that Jill Tarrant has fair hair, which is crazy, because the actress does not have fair hair. Maybe he meant, like, it's not great, but I've seen worse. <laughs> she could have better hair, that's true. Fair to Midland. Yeah, she hasn't been to a hairstylist since the beginning of the pandemic, so her hair's fine. Oh, oh, that was very good. Yeah, because they are suffering a pandemic. So again, we got another story that's <laughs> trying to speak to our own time, except this one is failing miserably. And I didn't even make that connection. Because it's so tepid. It's really not there necessarily. The space plague in this story is something that is happening elsewhere. Very much so. It doesn't even feel, I think Dalton, you said this story doesn't feel like there's a lot of danger or menace to it. And and you're right, there's not, because the Daleks would normally be that yeah. danger and that menace. But here, it's the city or the space plague. And neither of those feel, one is very present, but is kind of silly in its danger. And the other is very remote. And we have no sense that millions are dying of it in the no. way that they're telling us. It's simply reported as a fact. We totally forget about the plague because we're focusing on, they just need to get off this planet. And then it's like, oh, well, they get off and they're also taking the perineum with them. Exactly. 
so yeah, it, it's just like, oh, well, that that's just a secondary part of them getting off the planet. Mm-hmm. Is that, that they're going to actually succeed in their mission? Yeah, and I would have liked it better if they're. Here's here's just a thought. It might actually have been even more striking if the humans and the Daleks were indeed at war, because we're told that there were Dalek wars. God yeah. only knows when those happened. I don't know. Because there are always Dalek wars. I think they're the same Dalek wars that Big Finish did a, a series of audio dramas about some time ago. But it would have been a more interesting premise if you had two ships from either side ending up on the planet being drained of this energy after they've just been battling each other and desperately trying to figure out in their own separate ways how to destroy the city and get their power back in enough time to destroy the others. Yeah. That would have had much more tension. There would have been more stakes involved. You don't even necessarily need the Exelons for that, but you have them (laughs) because we have to have hostile aliens and we have to have one good alien because, you know, there's always got to be the good one. There's always the good one that's going to help the doctor. And well, I thought we had the whole group of good ones here in theory, but... I, you're right. We get the law, but we only get to hear from the one that's kind of watching out. And then we get his report, and then we never hear from them again. It's like, okay. So I wonder who the Exelons are supposed to usually sacrifice. Because I thought at first... <laughs> That yet another <laughs> character whose name I don't recall. I just I visualized him as Gollum. I thought that the premise would be that this is a fake out, that we think he's the monster. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that he's not the monster, that the security system, Phallic Eye, is the monster. Yeah. But I thought maybe the implication was that he tries to rescue the sacrifices. Mm-hmm. And that's neither affirmed nor denied. But would the Exelons usually be sacrificing one another? Are there others who crash land there? I I would think so. I think it's a matter of if a ship ever happens upon the Exelons, then the people in those ships having no way of defending themselves would probably be very quickly rustled up and sacrificed. Even with their space knives, because apparently there's a spaceman knife that's very specific. I was going to ask if we could have them as like party favors. Um, (laughs) I'm kind of podcast theme merchandise space knife well it, it would certainly be a, tin a way can of or because nobody else wants to market the damn things but the doctor recognizes it immediately as a spaceman knife it's like as distinct oh. from a terrestrial knife yeah i guess so and mm. so it's very odd that they should even have them i guess because why would you ever think to carry a knife with you on a space mission i mean it's it's a useful tool but a knife I mean, you'd have much more specific tools for that sort of thing, right? You can cut things. I don't know. I haven't been to space. Well, nor have I, but still, it's kind of like, okay. But once again, some perhaps interesting avenue for story here of maybe the Exelons survive as scavengers when other uh, ships become essentially trapped on the planet and they just take what they have. That could be it. Well, yeah. We're having to make that up, and, you know. Would they then have to embrace their technology? Uh-huh. Do, I just, uh, why Why are they so angry all the time? Why? 
Yeah, it may very well be that they're sacrificing people from the offshoot group because there may not be other ways of getting into the city. So they may decide to go that direct route, which is why they know about the security system, which is why Bilal is down there, after all. he's Bilal, that's who, yeah. Yeah, he's followed the Doctor and Sarah in there. Oh, God damn that man with his stupid fucking motorcycle. Because he's, we can't hear it on this end. I, I can hear it clearly. Because he's followed them down there, so and it's obviously like man on the motorcycle. No, okay, <laughs> let's do this again. Because he's followed them down there specifically because he knows what's down there, and he thinks, oh, these two creatures that have just landed on the planet are going to get themselves killed. Maybe I'd better do something about that. So it sounds like maybe that's what the Exelons on the surface, as opposed to the subterranean Exelons, have indeed been doing. They're all subterranean. This is is a thing that annoyed me. We are told over and over that the ones who dart about wearing robes also live in caves. But they live in caves on the surface. You're about to hear your host pull something out of his ass for the same reason that a politician talks about a pandemic and says there's nothing to worry about because he knows nothing. Sputtering impotent fists of rage. What's it? What is a surface cave versus <laughs> a subterranean cave? Means literally underground. Bala's people are literally living underground in tunnels, whereas the others are living above ground but in caves. It's depth. Yes. It's all about okay. depth. It's the only. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. So a surface cave and a subterranean cave. It's yeah. the only depth the story has. <laughs> It's, Pretty much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I do not accept being chided on this point as if I'm the one with the problem here. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I'm, well, I, I'm probably Everybody making most of it Everybody lives in caves. I, most of it I'm making up true, but for some reason... They're, they're all tasty. Yeah, yeah. Well, they are... Dist- well, no. Am I thinking the wrong thing? The rest of the creature's body was gray and it oozed out of the crack like toothpaste from a tube. That's Bilal, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. I didn't understand if they were supposed to have evolved or adapted to a different physiology. And well, they whenever there is the lookout, they make a point to say that like his eyes have adjusted to being in the caves constantly, so he he doesn't. Okay, he, fine. He's, you he's win. Not, he's not used to the sun, so the the bad Exelons yeah. basically live in caves, but they do come out into the desert. They do experience the sunlight and the bright. Right. Whereas the other ones basically are subterranean. They do not experience sunlight at all. So however, But they have fruit. Well, yeah, exactly. Because they're growing cave fruit. So, yeah. So they, yes. they basically have, they have evolved into a certain, yeah. you know, way. Yeah. Again, more questions than answers. <laughs> exactly. I will say there is one bit of this story that I really like. But it's, it's probably the only bit. At the end of chapter 10, when the doctor says to Sarah, if by any chance I don't get, get back, you have to return to Earth with the expedition. I'm sorry I got you into all this, because we rarely get that anymore, do we? The doctor apologizing to a companion for, I'm sorry, I know I promised you... I promise you swimming on Florana, where you can't sink, even though you tell us you can sink in your own bathtub, which I thought was a brilliant little line. But I'm really sorry that I got you into this. And he feels, seems genuinely sorrowful. Well, there really is no danger of drowning presented in this story. So he did keep that promise. 
<laughs> no, that's true. And Pertwee does play that moment with a great deal more kindness than we even see here on screen. Though by this point, Pertwee was literally checked out. He was very bored at this point and was just ready to go. So the characterization we get of, of the Doctor on the page is actually a lot better than we get on screen, too. Is there anything else we have to say about this story? Oh, I forgot. The uh, the TARDIS targets. Yes. <laughs> Ridiculous. The Daleks keep little nice. TARDIS models on their ships. <laughs> yes. And they oh. can't have made them because they don't have the power in their ship to do it. So they must so have, they have, them have to have them on hand. Yes. That is funny. Yes. <laughs> oh my god, it's even funnier on screen. But yeah, the fact that Dick's kept that. Or and at the very end to have <laughs> to have the Dalek's gun stick bent into an upward pointing U. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so funny, but that's yeah, that's just about it, really. I'd like to observe I think I've observed this before, that they have this doctor fight so physically fight so much more than the previous two combined. It's just interesting yeah. to me. Which is weird because even though Pertwee was pretty athletic he still needed a body double. So yeah, he's a much more physical doctor in so many ways, even though he's not nearly as bloodthirsty as the second doctor was. Well, he is, as in the last Dalek story, pretty cheerful about, you know, ideating about their deaths in a way that still... Oh, he does it here. Yes, yes. I mean, when when the snake is attacking the Dalek, uh, he says, good shot, sir. Yes. <laughs> well played. Mm-hmm. It's very funny. But there's so little that's funny about this one. Uh, uh, a bit of language funny. weirdness I'd like to point out that I don't have a conclusion about. But okay. the word bony is used twice in this book. Yes. And then the word wizened is used twice. And I, mm-hmm. thinking of odd beats that don't really pay off, I expected there to be some kind of connection. Now I just realize how stupid I sound. But the fruit was who's just... Who's bony and who's wizened? Uh, oh, the, the, the fruit the, was wizened. The old dried fruit wizened or wizened fruit indicating it was yeah. old but then mm-hmm. we are told i thought that someone had a wizened face so like it was used in a more sort of literally wizened less figurative sort of way the doctor has a point with a bony finger or he has a bony point and then he later calls the skeletons bony which of course they and are. i have no conclusion whatsoever to draw about this other than those are both distinctive words they're both used twice and there's no reason whatsoever and it just Seems like an example of not caring. I think you're right, because this this is essentially Dick's doing script to page and doing it on a schedule and trying to get it out and get it done and doing it about a script that he really didn't care that much for to begin with and doing it for creatures, uh, for monsters that he really doesn't like either. So, yeah, I think... It's it's astonishing that we get a book as good as we get, given how much animus Terrence Dix may have had for this particular story. In fact, it always surprises me that the discontinuity guide says of the story that for once there's too much plot rather than too little. I think what they're saying is there are too many potential plot points, most of them that don't get explored, that are in the story. But I will say that it was not jumbled and confusing in the way that many of these stories are with sort of a frenetic pacing of, you know, run, 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 fight, fight, fight. 
but nothing matters. I mean, nothing matters here either, but it's always very easy to keep track of what's going on. And the thing that's slightly ambitious, if we can apply the A word to any part of this story, is that a lot of the Dick's adaptations, we have three or four groups. So we have the Doctor and his companions, and then we have usually, it seems like in Dick's stories, two factions on a planet or two factions in a historical, and then maybe one of those factions will turn out to be the enemy. Or we could have two factions on a planet or in a historical, and then a fourth party that's actually the villain. And here mm -hmm. we have, I think, six. We've got the Doctor and Companion, and we've got the Earth Mining Medical Missionary Expedition. Um, that was mm -hmm. a funny joke. He said the Daleks are not exactly medical mi missionaries. We've got... <laughs> two different factions on the planet of Exelon. So that's a setup that we've seen a lot. And I couldn't even tell you now if it's more common in Dix's stories or the nation stories he's adapting. Right. And we have the Daleks. And we have the Death City. And that's six different sort of factions, if you will, there, if we count the city as one, which I think it performs here as a villain. And it's pretty easy to understand. So, and it, and it moves along. So I think that, that's an accomplishment. Yeah, I suppose. Something has to be accomplished by the story in some way, because otherwise it just kind of lies there like a damp squib. And uh, yeah. Anything else we can think of? Just the monster clay things that they fight once they get, well, not even fight, I guess, that they escape from inside the city. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> the, the doctor keeps kind of bringing up this idea the city is is you know kind of like a body and they're going to its heart and it's going to fight them off like they're a virus or some kind of foreign object that it's it's got to do away with even though it set up puzzles specifically to test and greet them exactly mm -hmm. um so yeah the idea that there's this system once they make it to the core, the heart, the brain, whatever, that is just there to expel them. <laughs> Even though there was a robed figure in there. And it's like, yeah. Yes. Who was that? Why was that necessary to even have? Uh, because on screen, it's meant to be a visual fake out that, oh, someone's controlling all this. Maybe there's somebody there. No. There's nobody there. But why was there an Exelon in there to begin with? Was that originally the intention? or Yeah, yeah it, again, more question than answer. Yeah. Was the set of puzzles supposed to be a way to select somebody to, you know, run the city? Maybe. And that would have been interesting if they had chosen to go in that direction. That somehow the city is enticing enough that the few excellents that are still smart and think of it as a threat will try to get into the city. The ones that do make it end up becoming enslaved by the city to run it. And it's like, well, that now that's interesting. That could go somewhere. And so it was abandoned immediately. Yeah, absolutely. Everything in the story is just... There's so many ways you could go with it. You could have a member of the Earth Expedition actually have the plague so we could see what this plague looks like. But no, none of that. Oh, well. I have one positive thing to say. All right. Um, so, Shay Shante. It's like a third one, I know. I'm just 
all just falling all over myself with praise for the third thing. <laughs> I like that they were told that the doctor's fake fall is uh, stumbling artistically. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we imagined it would be, yes. <laughs> well, <clears throat> let's go ahead then. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves, you may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is a surprising 3.61, which is higher than The Dinosaur Invasion, believe it or not. This story scores higher than Malcolm Hulk. Uh, The book does, anyway, not the story, obviously. In our Goodreads group, T.E. Hodden gives it three stars and says, This is the quintessential Target novel. A quick-paced, fun adaption of the story, I almost said adaptation, that added little in the way of detail or background to the story, but takes it out of an open cast quarry and polystyrene sets to an alien world of crumbling ruins with terrifying cultists instead of rubber masks and ragged cloaks and dangerous robotic serpents instead of vacuum cleaner parts. (laughs) Which, by the way, it exactly sounds like. Christian Petri, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, might be Petri. Christian Petri, on the other hand, gives it two stars and says... Is it a good thing when you start off a review saying it was not as bad as you thought it would be? This just felt like a paint-by-the-numbers story. Granted, some interesting concepts. The Exelons were a powerful race who built a city too powerful and reverted to a non-tech race. The city having different puzzles to solve to make it to the heart of it felt as if it was something we've seen before. However, in reading the Doctor Who books, this is the first time the concept was used. Not too much here to report on otherwise. Probably the weakest Dalek story, and an easily forgettable story as well. Only for those who are Doctor Who fans and happen to have no other book to read. That's for sure. And finally, Grey Wolf gives it five stars and says, This is probably the best novelization of a Doctor Who story I have read. How many has he read? I don't know. But when he was younger, he read it time of day. When I was younger, I read it time and again. I reread it a few years ago to see how it had held up, and it was still excellent. Better than the TV episodes were themselves. Well, I think that's the key there, isn't it? If you're comparing this to the TV episodes, it is far and away better. But that's a bit like saying that this piece of shit sitting here on the floor is better (laughs) than this one that is fresh and fragrant. Because it at least has dried up and you don't have to worry about it any longer. That was a little more evocative than anything we read in the book. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I had to go there. You should be. Yeah, I should be. So, Allison, I'm going to make you go first then. Uh, what was your opinion? How many uh, out of five stars, how much would you give this? You know, I don't think it was terrible. It just failed to be good when it had potential to be good. And actually, it was a little good. I'm going to go 1.5, which is maybe more generous than you were expecting. Mm-hmm. I would have probably enjoyed it more if it had been one of the first ones that I read and I hadn't read every single plot element as adapted by this same person at least once and some of them two to four times before. It's mm-hmm. 
it's not the horrible waste of potential that makes me so frustrated in other books that are better but then fail so horribly to live up to their potential. This one never had huge potential, but it had some, and I guess it did still fail to live up to it. But it has it has some good atmospheric moments. It has some, some nice little ideas, even though they weren't developed. It's, you know, it's a tolerable mid-morning snack. 1.5. Okay. Okay. That works. Dalton? I think this is probably the lowest rating I have given a book. I'm thinking probably a 2. I'm going to agree with Christian on this. Yeah. It just raises so many more questions for me than are answered. Ugh. It it was not written horribly, but it's just like like a couple of other people have said. It's just kind of dialed in. There's there's nothing spectacular about it. There's nothing that really stands out. There's no interesting passages that let you get really inside of the characters, feelings, anything like that. It's just kind of bleh. Yeah, it gets the story across from screen to page, but it doesn't really leave me wanting more. Yeah, I agree. Like those food cubes. You've had enough. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And for me, I would agree. I would have to give it a two because had early Terrence Sticks gotten hold of this story, or even if perhaps later Terrence Sticks had gotten hold of this story, we might have gotten a better book out of it. Instead, we get Taryn Sticks, who is at this point slaving away to get these done by a deadline and has very little interest in adding much more to it than he can. That being said, he, we, we still get you know those typical Taryn Sticks tropes, the screen direction in parentheses. We only get one of those this time, but there you go. We get some snarky comments about the Daleks, which are much appreciated. We get definite confirmation that the Daleks cannot fly or go upstairs or do anything because they can't climb, so they have to have the humans do it for them to blow up the city. Uh, But nothing gets added. This could actually be taken out of Dalek lore entirely, and nobody would care. In fact, it was always a surprise to me in the in the Matt Smith story, Asylum of the Daleks, when you get to the actual asylum of the Daleks, where all the Daleks who have gone insane from having failed at their missions against the Doctor are being held in this one asylum. There are survivors from Exelon. What's so special about this lot, then? Dunno. Survivors of particular wars. Spiridon, Kemble, Iridius, Vulcan, Exelon. Ringing any bells? All of them. Yeah? These are the Daleks who survived me. Where do those survivors come from? They all blew up in the ship. There are no survivors from Exelon. And yet they are said to be there in that asylum, which is just patently ridiculous. Now, Dix does clear up a few things. He does clean up a few things. The, the Dalek who ends up uh, letting Jill Tarrant escape, on screen, it commits suicide. It self-destructs because it has failed in its mission, which is one of the stupidest things ever. Here, Dix actually says, oh, it realized what it had done, and it started doing a search for the, the missing human. And of course, that makes sense. So he's at least improved upon it. But again, he's polished a turd, and it is still a shiny turd. So two stars is absolutely being generous to this thing. 
I say that knowing what's coming. So thank you guys. <laughs> and thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Wait, what's ne coming? I'll tell you. Next time, we're doing another Technically Target. And this time, it really isn't a Target book. It's instead Barry Lett's novelization of the next story, Technically in Story Order, his second radio play, and John Pertwee's last story ever as the Doctor, The Ghosts of Endspace. That's what's coming. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in words and spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails, you email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Our theme by Aaron S. is available on his YouTube channel at tinyurl.com forward slash Y32B8F55 along with many, many others. Give him a follow and a thumbs up. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And we are out. Oh my god. Okay, so I've got a bone to pick with Tony. I did this before we were recording and I will do it again now before God and Country. This man emailed us a 377 page PDF right before we started recording. When yes. it was too late to back out to use as leverage against him. Yes. And that's the ghost of end space. You're well, and, welcome. And I actually didn't hate the last Barry Letts we read, but large portions of it seem to be uh, him reworking a novel that he failed to sell about Onya. So my question is, Tony, will this also be an original sci-fi series that he was developing that he couldn't successfully pitch to a publisher and then reworked into a Doctor Who story? <laughs> I will leave that for you to determine. It's and, yes, isn't it? And not even a terrible novel, just a different one. Uh, everyone email Tony a 500-page PDF of your unsold novels. <laughs> it is not, believe me. Trust me, it's just, it's just the spacing. Besides which, what you're getting is, you're getting a PDF that is a true-type PDF, so you're getting the actual pages as they appeared in the original book. And yeah, unfortunately, the original book is indeed 377 pages, <sighs> of which maybe only 12 are good. I didn't hate the, the last one. I thought there were some fun things in it, but it um, overstayed its welcome. Well, yeah, just well, do wait. For a book that's uh, main offense was failing to wrap up in a satisfying way, it took a really long time to do so. As will this mm. one, unfortunately, but there you go. It's still the best Onion headline ever. Masturbatory prose style fails to climax. 